On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about education, particularly the red flags that experts are now waving about a bunch of kids, a lot of kids, a whole host, a cohort of kids who have been home and affected for the last year and a half or so and have now fallen into a dangerous place academically. What happens with them? We're going to talk to an expert on that one. And we're going to talk about Larry Walker, went into the Baseball Hall of Fame on Wednesday night. Still sour, though he and us about the 1997 Lou Marsh Award. We're going to talk about that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have talked before on this show um, about education, about what's happening, about the last year and a half and so on. But the week that kids head back to school seems like a rather perfect time to pick up the conversation again. And... After more than a year out of the classroom, for the most part, some went back for a little bit. What are we doing about kids who have fallen rather hopelessly behind or have fallen through the cracks altogether? There's, there are surely, I mean, it's anecdotal still at this point, although we'll find out more, I'm sure, as kids are back in school. It's anecdotal, but there are surely a ton of kids who fall into that first group, the ones who have fallen behind, but we... And we don't know exactly how many are in the second group who have fallen through the cracks altogether, but it's not a small cohort. But experts, as I said a moment ago, are beginning to, well, not even beginning, I mean, more furiously now, I guess, waving flags saying, um, we can't pretend nothing is happening here and expect that things are going to get back to normal. Irving Student is chair of the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids. That's just the Ice tip of the iceberg of his resume. I could be here for half the day just listing off all his achievements. Editor in chief, publisher, and founder of Global Brief Magazine, president of Institute for 21st Century Questions, on and on and on. He joins us now. Irvin, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. How, you've written about this and you've used, I think, the word catastrophe talking about this. And boy, that's a big word. How worried should we really be? that there is a huge chunk of our student population that is way, way, way behind where they should be at this point. Well, I, I use the word catastrophe, as you rightly note, very deliberately. It is, in my view, the biggest catastrophe of the pandemic period, much bigger than the public health and the economic catastrophes, but the one of which we speak least, partly because we're dealing with kids and, and they can't speak for themselves. And, and, and secondly, because we're so caught up in the pandemic, we're missing, I think, the bigger uh, catastrophe, which has the longest tentacles with these consequences for our kids and for the future of, of the country. So we ought to be very worried. If I may, you divide the, we divide the, the catastrophe into two uh, groups of kids uh, at elementary and high school levels alike. First is the, the general um, um, laggardness, the, the catch-up that all of them have to do on, on academic and social skills alike. It's huge catch-up, and, and, and we're not prepared for that. And the second one, I think, more pathological, which was really uh, not understood well because we're an advanced country that has never had this problem, is what I call third-bucket kids, kids who have not just fallen through the cracks but have been ousted of, out of the from the education system altogether over the course of the last year and a half for a host of reasons. They are not in school at all, not virtual school, not physical school. They're in what we call the third bucket, and they're there permanently unless we get them back to school, and, and that is a moral catastrophe. They're heading for very dark places in life in very large numbers in Ontario in particular, so it's a, it's a big worry. 
to, to the best of your knowledge, and you've written about this, you've looked into this, to the best of your knowledge, is anything being done to directly address either of these two things, the kids in the, in the, the third bucket kids or the just the academic fallings behind of a lot of kids? Well, I'm sure there is some heroic level at, at the grassroots level, um, heroic work at the grassroots levels. Um, in, in different I'm thinking more from an administrative across the province thing. But if I may be direct from, from, the, from the, the top levels, uh, from those responsible, whether on the political or policy side or on the scientific medical side, zero, zero, uh, head in the sand, in curiosity, doubling down on what I call policy degeneracy, uh, in my view, policy crimes by now. And this is an imperative because, as I mentioned, these kids cannot do well in the world of tomorrow. No one will need a kid who has a grade five, six, seven, eight, nine education in a world that is that much crueler than 2019. We've caused this through a systems collapse. Um, the, the most obvious example of ouster is a kid who, as soon as things go online, has no access to the internet or a sustainable device. That's the first one. But imagine if you're in the second bucket, you're online, you imagine everyone is comfortably in so-called virtual school, but you're in an abusive home. You're not studying for any practical purposes. You're in a home that is very poor and you're forced into the labor market very early on. You're in a home that has no English or French uh, yourself or your parents, and you can't follow the language of instruction. You have learning or physical disabilities and so on. And if I may, Scott, the, the, the one that worries me the most is our middle and high school level children who, after one or two months online, lose to fail, fail to see the point or purpose of schooling, mm. what they understood to be a, a happy community with boyfriends, girlfriends, sport, music, community, academics, all of a sudden loses all purpose as soon as you go online indefinitely as we as as the premier once described we're out of school indefinitely and they just turn off the zoom room and if they're if they're out for a few months their mentality changes we're going to have a hell of a time getting them back and who needs them in in the post-pandemic world Mm. if we're going to be direct so that is uh, imperative nobody is doing anything at this why we started the commission to explain the problem to canadians it happens to be the worst problem around the world there are 500 million kids now newly in the third bucket as a result of the pandemic 20 million up to 20 million in the united states 200,000 across our own country and catastrophically in my view criminally here over 100,000 in ontario alone because of the duration of the school closure so it's job number one it is an imperative mission because the window to get them back is is very very tight you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml well, let me ask you about the academic thing. We had another guest on here some months ago and we were talking about the kids who had fallen hopelessly behind because of online and they didn't keep up. And one of the suggestions was, you know what the boards should have done is we used to call it failing kids, but holding kids back who aren't clearly ready to go ahead or even allowing parents to make that call. Would that be something that we should have considered or is that so mentally and emotionally harmful now that telling a kid he has to repeat grade six is, is just a terrible idea? I think, uh, Scott, um, those are all reasonable suggestions, but there, I think there are two ways to attack this. One is from a system-wide perspective, and, and I'll, I'll comment on that in a sec. So things that are common to all kids, changes we need to make given the pandemic and, and, and the, the, our, our, our back-footedness coming out of the pandemic in education. And the second one is the bespoke approach tailored for every individual 
child's uh, circumstances and, and condition coming out of the pandemic. Some of them will have done well, but the majority will be academically gravely behind, in my view, and many of them will be emotionally, psychologically, socially behind. So, and, and everything needs to be tailored. That is a lot, a lot of work, and we're not used to it. We're used to the system being automated. It, it works on its own momentum and devices. So we, we, we just graduate kids and we presume they'll go on to be productive citizens. Now right. we really have to do work that is foreign to us. And the same goes for the third bucket kids. It's door to door, go and tailor the pitch to each kid. And same for the kids still in the system. If the child is behind in math, you need a special curriculum to get the kid caught up. If the child is behind in English or reading or, or, or basic numeracy, you need a curriculum for that child. We need it for two or three years. And that takes mentorship. That takes persistence. It takes empathy. And that's a lot of work. It's much more than the current posture of, of just tweeting at the ch- children and just opening the doors and, and administering the curriculum in language and concepts that imagine that we didn't just go through the last year and a half. And may, may, now from a systems perspective, let me offer uh, three key rules, at least two. One is thou shalt never close the schools again. Thou shalt never even threaten to close the schools again. There must never be the idea that schools can ever close again unless there is war, as I said, unless the Americans, the Russians, or the Chinese are at the gates of Hamilton. Otherwise, you keep them open, and the school, the children must imagine that school is perpetual, that tomorrow is like today. They need long legato lines. They don't need the Twitter feed of, of the Minister of Education or the Premier or the, the, the commentariat just tweeting at them, close, not close, threaten to close tomorrow, what's happening. They need long lines. That's the first thing. Because we now we know that as soon as you close the system, a system you don't see, death obtains. That's what happens. The second thing is that we need to oust the concept of, of uh, safe return or careful return or being prudent or baby steps. That's all zombie language for zombie schools. We need to go full-on, energetic, happy, spiritual, contentful schooling as ambitious as ever in order to get caught up, in order to get third bucket kids back. That's a small condition. But we need to, to inject the system with energy like never before. Those are system-wide musts, and we're on the back foot on both. We don't understand that that's the pivot that needs to be done in Ontario, in, in particular in Canada in general, in order to get caught up from, from our catastrophe. And I think a lot of people right now would say, you know what, that makes a ton of sense. But let me ask you this. Uh let's say we put in the policy that says schools will never close again, as you've suggested, and a fourth wave comes along that's with the Delta variant or something else. I, I, you know, I don't want to be throwing teachers under the bus, but I don't see all the teachers lining up to say, Hey, bring me to school. I'm fine. I don't mind going back to school. If there's a fourth wave, how are you going to convince the educators and administrators and board people to stick with that? Because that they're going to be the first ones to say, don't go to school. It's too dangerous. That's right. The decision to close schools was, purely a political one. By the way, it, it happened around the world. So that's how we ended up with third, 500 million third bucket kids all of a sudden who were just in our arenas and soccer fields but a year ago. Around the world, all the schools were closed simultaneously in March of last year. It was the big, most most concurrent uh, improvised policy action, I think, in, in world history. Now we know it's a mistake. The political action to close them is the same one that says they must stay open it. Many countries now understand this. Many countries didn't close. Many countries have continued to educate their kids to the nines over the last year and a half while we have slept or allowed the system to collapse. 
And as I say, I think in an article I wrote recently in the Globe, we will meet these kids uh, uh, several years down the road in the theater mm. of life, and our kids will not be able to compete. They will not be prepared uh, through our own mistakes. So the rule must be politically, it must be understood. The schools stay open no matter what. It's not for the teachers to decide, not for social media to decide, it's not for the doctors to decide. It's a political call and must be a norm. And now we know that the reverse is a catastrophe, that as soon as we close a massive complex system with many moving parts like the schools, death obtains. We send many, many kids to early deaths, uh, and that mm. is just a fact. A child who is undereducated or not educated at all in the pandemic, yeah. post-pandemic world will just not do well. The Irving, second point got... on, on, on just full-on schooling is, is more counterintuitive but essential. I only have a minute left and, and just one more thing. I wish I had much more time because it's fascinating discussion, but um, you just mentioned about how, you know, we, we should have, we need to go around and go door to door to find the kids who are the third bucket kids and do other things. I know that we just had two months off and that is tradition under the circumstances. Are those two wasted months that not enough stuff was done that we should have thrown caution to the wind this summer and said, this is a unique situation this summer. We got to work. 100%. We had no right to rest. We had no right to rest. And we rested, and that's where the policy crimes become very conspicuous because at that point, uh, through my work and the work of a number of, 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 of specialists in this field, we've been raising alarms. It's known now. And to pretend it doesn't exist is tantamount to a policy crime because we will then have to explain to these kids five, ten years down the road why they weren't educated why they weren't brought back to a system there's a public system that on which the legitimacy of the state and government uh, is based and for no good reason other than our either our intellectual dishonesty or our laziness and i hope neither of those ring true long term in ontario and canada so we got a lot of work to do i say the fall is a must door to door is essential and we're not short of door to door uh, a lot of legwork, uh, both at the, at the high level, policy level, and at the personal level in communities. That is Irving Student. We are. I'm going to post his piece that was in the Globe just the other day about fixing Canada's education system in five steps at the Scott Radley Show Facebook page. Go check that out. Irving, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Steve Foxcroft. He is a good friend of ours. He is um, a, a, well, he's a commentator. He's an official, um, brother of an official. His brother did the the Labor Day game on for the CFL the other day. Steve, how are you tonight? Doing great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm great. Hey, listen, I got to ask you this. When Dave, when your brother does a labor, does a game in Hamilton, are you terrified that one of these days he's going to make a call that is going to make him the Carrie Fraser of Hamilton oh. so that he cannot walk the streets anymore? Well, that is a fear, right? Like you, as refs, we try to be perfect and then improve, but there's always that you want to do a good game always. But yeah, but I have confidence in Dave. Like he prepares well and he's ready for it and he does a good job and he's done it for so long now that I really, I don't have that fear. The fear I have is, I try to be neutral myself when I go, when Dave's refing, I try not to go with my tie cat gear on because one time they put us on TSN and it didn't look good when they say, Oh, there's the dad, <laughs> there's the dad and brother of the ref. And I'm wearing like tie cat colors and everything. So, but you know what, this year, after a couple of years, I threw that rule out the window and I was garbed up with my tie cat colors. 
I, you know, I, I, look, I, I have confidence in Dave too. Dave is a very good official and he's done CFL for a long time. He's worked in the NFL. He's done. So, I mean, he, he knows what he's doing, but I, I always, and not just for an official. I mean, if I was the parent or the brother of an athlete, you live to me, you live in perpetual fear that all of a sudden they pull a Bill Buckner and everything that they've done up to that point is forever change that's the only thing they're known for and look carrie fraser how many years did carrie fraser referee in the nhl and what's the number one thing he's known for is missing the gretzky high stick on doug gilmore in the playoffs that could have sent the leafs to the stanley cup final you know it's it's a anyone involved if i'm a parent or a sibling i I, i'm nervous in that stands that's what warren buffett says right 20 years to make your reputation and five minutes could ruin it and in that case it could be like five seconds or something like that and carrie frazier he was a pretty good ref when you know he was known for the hair and everything like that but let's face it he was pretty good oh he was and 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 as i say i mean that's not only what he's known for but boy that you're right you can it's a it's a frightening thing to be in that spotlight when you can prepare all you want, but you can't know what's coming. That's I mean, right. as much and as you're prepared, something could always, you could have your back turned, you could miss something that, you know, anything could happen that you have no expectation of. And so, you know, you do your best and you just hope that that's not your, not your fate. Yeah, we, we do that too. We prepare, we see a lot of things as refs, especially over and over again. But, you know, the expression, right? You, you Just when you think you've seen it all, you haven't seen it all. Like the one thing I was expecting was a fight of some sort on Labor Day, but yeah. they kind of got, got away with it till the end. It was a more of a skirmish rather than a fight. Okay, so true confessions. Your brother is refing the game. You're wearing your tie cat gear. There were a couple moments when the fans were unhappy with the officials. When there was a call that was controversial and didn't go the tie cat's way, are you standing up and jeering and booing your brother, or are you sitting there quietly? <laughs> No, you know what? Usually I protect them. I usually explain to the people around us that I think the call was correct or something like that. <laughs> Try to give an explanation. So yeah, I do defend them. I've never gotten on the refs. I can't do that. <laughs> the The numbers this year in the CFL uh, TV numbers have been, so far, they've been exceptional. I mean, we're, we're coming out of, we didn't know what the numbers were going to be. We lost a year. Um, people didn't know if there was going to be a lack of interest or what. TV numbers, some of them, the reports are up by 39% year over year, week over week from the last time there was a season. Do you think this is sustainable? We did a thing on home games, the the video, the YouTube channel that Rick Zamperin and Bob O'Neill and Steve Milton and I do. Do you think this is sustainable or do you think this is curiosity and, uh-oh, the minute the NFL starts, some of those numbers go back to normal or not even normal? That's a great point about when the NFL starts, because there's so many fans. I think most fans love both games and they appreciate the differences of both games. And I think it is sustainable because our lives have changed, right? Our daily routines have changed. And a lot of us now are in front of the television more. And, and I think most of us are done with Netflix and we have to get back to like live things where we don't, we don't know the outcome or we don't sort of expect that, you know, every Netflix thing I, I thought I watched at the end of it, I go, well, I knew that was going to happen. You know, very rarely they throw me a curveball. So I really appreciated and enjoyed this, especially the CFL because it's in our blood. Right. And, and having them on the road for the first few games, it was, it was 
tough. It was tough to watch. I said, let's get back to Tim Hortons Field. I can't wait to get there. And then the day turned out to be perfect. Yeah, like, it was a great weather, day. The, the way the game played out, it was just perfect. The uh, the one thing I think the league has to be a little bit concerned about is there have been a lot already of low scoring games on what we would traditionally say un CFL like games. And you know, I, Steve, as much as people can love a good defensive struggle, I'm not the CFL. I'm not sure that plays for the CFL. They need the whole reason the field is bigger is for opening things up. You need scoring if you want these ratings to continue. You know, I think we had a great debate. I was talking to Randy Ambrosi, the, the commissioner, a week or two ago, and we were talking about differences between the CFL and the American rules and how maybe there's some that you could throw out, right? Like like giving a yard at the line of scrimmage. Um, you could maybe move the goalposts back, whatever. Like some you could you could change and it wouldn't affect the game. But the, the one we talked about a lot was about scoring and all that and having the games like the CFL game and how we appreciate it is because it is so wide open and having the receivers with a running start at the line of scrimmage. And then the one we also talked about was, could you ever go from three downs to four downs? No, no, I, I, never. I don't think so too, but the debate got it into the, the scores might go from 35 points to 70, like 70 to 68 or something like that. Yeah, you know, but that makes it that makes it a joke. That makes it ridiculous. That's like 1980s hockey at times when you had games that ended 13-11. I mean, it was right. like an all-star game. I, I I just look at it and I think, you know, to me, and everyone has a different theory. To me, my theory of why scoring is not what it once was is because the NFL has changed so much. And they now look for guys, quarterbacks, who once upon a time, they're not drop back passers. Once upon a time, guys like Russell Wilson and um, uh, what's his name in Kansas City? Um, oh, Mahomes. Uh, Mahomes and others like yeah. that. Those guys would be in the CFL because those were right. not NFL style quarterbacks. And, you know, Russell Wilson, imagine Russell Wilson in the CFL. And he, and he would like to take it up. those guys out. Yeah, you take yeah. those guys out now. And I'm not saying the quarterbacks are bad, but they're not at the same super duper superstars that they were once upon a time. Right. So you think that's a, so even here in Hamilton, like, is there a difference between Mazzoli and Evans? Like Mazzoli seems to be like the uh, Ken Hobart type, like kind of more of a burly guy. That's a running back, but can throw it too. And, and Evans seems more like a prototypical passer that chucks it all over the field. It's like, it's a, that's a great debate, right? Like, do we have the, the skill level of the high quality, the quarterbacks, the Doug Flutie styles. Right. Do we have right. that still? They're very, I mean, look, Dane Evans, very good quarterback. Missoli, good quarterback. Are they, as you say, are they Doug Flutie? Are they Matt Dunnigan? Are they oh. Condridge Holloway? Are they, I mean, go back to the sort of the, are they Warren Moon? See, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not, I don't think they're there because I think those guys are now playing in the NFL. Right. Yeah. Also, oh, so you're saying they come up here, but then they graduate, if you will. No, no, NFL. no. I'm even saying, well, sometimes, sometimes, but I'm saying now the NFL, once upon a time, the NFL wanted guys who would take three steps or seven steps and drop back and just throw the ball or hand it off. You right. wanted pocket guys. Now they want the, uh, Michael Vick types or the, um, you yeah. know, any guys who can move around. They want guys who, and those were the guys the CFL used to be able to get. So all and, those super exciting quarterbacks, they would come up here. Now they don't. 
And you know what I think too? When they came up here, they they didn't get injured as much because the field is so much bigger and it's such a wide open game. I think those kind of guys like the RG threes, they go into the NFL. It's so compact. They yep. get hit once or twice. Then they're injured. Then they don't come back. They're never the same. But I think those kind of guys, when they're up here, our game is suited for it. So, oh so yeah, back that's why the, the original thing is I hope that the I think the television ratings will do well, even with the NFL starting up, because, um, like I said, we're in different livelihoods now, right? We are we're kind of craving that, I think, and like I've enjoyed it. So I hope I hope it continues, even with the NFL, because I'm excited for the NFL to start as well. So I can't wait for both. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got to go back 24 years. Larry Walker is being inducted into Cooperstown into the Baseball Hall of Fame today. Second Canadian after Fergie Jenkins. Great baseball career. Unbelievable player. Fantastic Canadian athlete. But I got to go back to 1997. I am still sour that Larry Walker lost the Lou Marsh Trophy to Jacques Villeneuve's car. That was the most egregious wrongdoing in Canadian sports voting history. That a guy who does the hardest thing in baseball in the world in sports to hit a round ball with a round bat and hit it square, that that guy lost to a guy who drove a car. And that's what he said too, which I think shocked everybody. And I loved it because I'm with you. I was a Larry Walker fan. Loved it that he was with the Expos for a while. Loved it that he, he probably became a great defender by growing up as a hockey goalie. And he developed his reflexes in that. And that probably helped him with hand-eye coordination, like you said, to hit a ball that's thrown at you 100 miles an hour and diving all over the place. So that was tremendous. And then the part that kind of irked me, too, remembering back, and now Bubba's going to not like us because he's a big F1 guy, right? He likes yeah, the yeah. fast cars and that. But what does he know? Because two years <laughs> earlier, they also gave it to Jacques Villeneuve. So they could have, like, they said that, and then the next year they give it to Larry. It's kind of like they said, oh, shoot, we made a mistake. We better give it to him the next year, you know? And that that bugged me. And if they really wanted to do it, they had in the past, too, give it to, uh, like, they've, had co-winners right like they've had that a couple times too so if you want to give it to the car or Jacques Villeneuve then then give it to both of them at, at the very least I thought that's what they should have done you know it's not just Bubba that's going to be mad at us Scott Thompson is a huge car guy but I'll tell you if 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 this was if Jacques Villeneuve truly deserved this more than Larry Walker for driving a car then why in times past, have we given athlete of the year or sportsman of the year to like secretariat, for example, why not the jockey riding secretariat? Cause that's the same thing. Well, the car is the horse. Why did we not give it to the jockey that rode secretariat to victory? Well, that's yeah. And who was a Canadian, by the way, Ron Turcott. So, you know, so they could have done that, but they did, they did give it to Sandy Holly a couple of times. But he wasn't riding one horse, right? They gave it no. to him because he, he broke Bill Shoemaker's record of, uh, what was that, 486 wins. He had 515 wins one year by flying around. He went down to Maryland and would ride, then come back to Woodbine. So he was riding seven days a week, and he got 550. So they gave it to him 
you know, so, but it wasn't the horse. He rode a ton of horses, but this was a, like, it's a mechanical thing too. Like it's not a, it's not a person or an animal. Like it was a car. Uh, how many, how many championships did Jacques Villeneuve win when he switched teams after that championship season? That's right. Exactly. Right. Like it didn't happen. Like it was done. So, and, and his partner, the guy who was driving the same make of car as him finished second that year, which says something. Uh, anyway, I just look, this is not a bash race car drivers. I'm not against race car drivers. It's just, I'm sorry. Comparing a guy hitting a baseball, as you say, at 95 or hundred miles an hour, that's bending and sliding and flash bulbs going off and people screaming and doing that compared to a race car driver who has the benefit of the car to propel him. I mean, if, if Larry Walker had a bat that was three times the width, then you go, okay. And the other guys yeah. had to hit with a regular size bat. I would go, all right. All right. But I'm sorry. This I'm 24 years later. That one's still. Yeah. It's like, a, like you're saying, it's not against the car racing as a sport or anything. It's about giving it to the right individual who deserved it that particular year. Yeah. Like and he so was I'm the first thrilled. guy to win the batting title in 110 years, like a first Canadian in 110 years since Tip O'Neill. Like, give it to him. I am thrilled as a result that, well, I'm, I was thrilled that he got the Lou Marsh eventually, but thrilled that he's going into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. This is now, this is a guy who, you know, uh, talk about being overlooked, not just in that award, but I mean, how long that he was in his last year of eligibility to go into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And they finally said, oh, yeah, he was pretty good. Which was just, uh, to me, it was yeah. just incredibly stupid and, and claiming that it's because he played in Coors Field and the thin air and everything. He yeah, hit no, better on the road. He had yeah. better numbers on the road. Exactly. No, he deserved it. And it was, it's like one of those overlooked ones, like about time, right? Like, that's great. I'm so happy for him. And I'll say this about those two guys, because there's now two Canadians in there. will soon be a third because Joey Votto is going to get into the yeah. Baseball Hall of Fame. For but sure. I'll say this, Larry Walker never met the guy. Um, but from every report, everything you hear, fantastic human being, just an amazing guy. And so you're thrilled for that. I watched a video this week of Joey Votto, um, who was, he plays in Cincinnati now. And there was a kid there who has cancer that he brought to the park and, and like amazing stuff. And Fergie Jenkins, um, number of years ago when my son was playing little league, Fergie Jenkins was involved with the Canadian little league championship in Ancaster could not have been a more wonderful gentleman, more open with the kids, um, amazing stuff that he did to give up his time to hang out with the kids. And, and, you know, these are like 12 year old kids. He doesn't have to do this. He's Fergie Jenkins. He's about to get a statue at Wrigley field. And it's like, you know what, of of the great Canadian baseball players are holding their own as great Canadian people too, which is amazing. I love that because they say that about hockey players, right? But it just carries on. It's Canadians in general, like sports uh, aside, like it's just great. And yeah, Fergie Jenkins Dynamite from Chatham, right? And yep. and Maple Ridge, BC for Larry Walker. Like they're just small town great people. I love it. Small anecdote that will mean nothing to anybody, but I'm going to bore them with it anyway. When my son, who played on that team in the Canadian Little League Championships, when he hit his first ever home run in baseball, Fergie Jenkins was doing color commentary at the time on cable 14. So Fergie Jenkins called my son's first oh. ever home run, which I always thought was really cool. Cause uh, you know, nothing like that ever happened for me. So I got to live vicariously. You know what? That's something I would have already wore out the tape watching that one over <laughs> and the kids go, what do you mean a tape? But you know what I, you know what I mean by, I know exactly for that. So I know exactly. Hey, can I touch base on some other little anecdotes, local Absolutely. people doing great? Cause you know, the tennis is going on this week, right? And the Canadians have, they haven't walked through the door. They've 
busted down the door at the U.S. Open with uh, Leila Annie uh, Fernandez and Felix Auger-Alassim. Like, I am so proud of them, and it's uh, appointment television. But locally, I play once a week at Rosedale Tennis Club, run by the city of Hamilton. It's like the finest facility around. It's so great. But I walk in the other day, and Taylor Ormond, who went to Baylor University and played tennis, and her sister, Tony, who went to Ball State in Indiana, they're playing before me. And you know what, Scott? They look like they could be in the U.S. Open. Like, they they haven't lost a step. They were hammering the ball at each other and so competitive. And it's, you know, they, you wonder why this has happened, where the Canadians are doing so well. It's people like that. And, you know, they coach the kids. And no wonder we Canada has a bright future for tennis, too. And yeah, part of it is right here in Hamilton. Uh, and by the way, uh, you mentioned Rosedale. There was a, a, a that one of the tennis pros at Rosedale was an official, was a, an official in the Olympics in Tokyo just this summer, uh, Jamal, Mustafa Jamal. Who, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Tennis like, everywhere. And yeah. imagine how Canadian tennis would be right now because we've got all these folks, men and women, doing well. If Jeannie Bouchard had not flamed out and if she was anything like she was for a number of years there, I mean, boy, we, we'd be dominating. We yeah, still are. But so, and Milos has done well, Chapo, like it's just a, you know, it's so great to see, but it's kind of like the basketball effect when you had the Vince Carter and Steve Nash, maybe, maybe that's what's groomed it. Some of them have sort of opened their eyes to it at, a, at the perfect age and they've done well, as opposed to like when I play and Mayor Fred Eisenberger is often on the court beside me and he yells at me because he's always retrieving my serve because it bounces onto the next court. So I'm not busting through the door to be at the U.S. Open yet. Steve Foxcroft, soon to be in the Seniors U.S. Open yes. B Division. <laughs> and not inducted into Hall of Fames or getting Lou Marsh trophies. <laughs> not yet. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks, Steve. Good to, good to catch up as always. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.